I'm delighted to have with me today Eleonore from Beeworm. Welcome, Eleonore. Thank you for having me. Am I saying your name right? Uh, almost. It's Eleonore. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> okay, Eleonore. It's Italian, right? Yeah, actually, it is the German version of an Italian name. <sighs> my, my, my parents thought it was funny to complicate my life even more by giving me the German version of an Italian name. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So yeah. you keep, uh, how many times a day is your name said wrong on average? <sighs> um, usually people call me Ele, so they get that one right. Okay, um, that's what I'm going to do. So that's my strategy. Yeah. <laughs> welcome, welcome, Ele. Uh, so uh, you're from Beeworm. Uh, what is Beeworm? Beeworm is a biotech startup based in Munich. We are a team of different kind of backgrounds. I'm an industrial designer and my co-founders are biologists. We have some management people in the team. And we are working on a novel recycling technology for plastics. To be specific, we're working on polyethylene plastics, which is the world's most commonly used plastic material. Everybody knows in the form of bags, foils, wrappings, and so on. So it's this uh, often transparent uh, packaging that you, you see a lot in, in, in the food industry and in, in your daily items. We're working with, uh, with microorganisms that uh, decompose that material to turn it again into raw material that can be reused in the petrochemical industry. So we're back talking about plastics, one we've covered a couple of times, but you've got a very novel approach and you're sort of trying to leverage the power of nature, right? Like you're, you're working out if there are uh, enzymes in nature that can help break down plastic, is that fair? Exactly. So uh, we've been looking at microorganisms that we isolated from a certain worm called waxworm. And these microorganisms produce enzymes that can attack plastics. We're not working only with these microorganisms, but also with, with others. And the end goal is to understand how microorganisms, so small living creatures, are able to attack plastic materials. And they usually do this, this by producing enzymes or proteins, which are um, like scissors that can cut the, the molecule of plastics into shorter fragments. Because plastics so are kind of long molecules. Exactly. Plastics are, in our case, in polyethylene is a, is a long molecule composed of, of hydrogen and carbon. And you want to cut that in the middle, basically, where the strong CC bond is to get out shorter fragments. Uh, but this can also be done with, with other plastics. Then you just need other enzymes to do the job. So I first saw this in a, in a news article. I, I think I... And actually, if I'm honest, it kind of upset me because I think what happens is we all are desperate for breakthrough with plastic in that we, we see a lot of it in the natural environment and, and leakage, obviously, into the sea, etc., from landfill, whatever. And and so as soon as there's kind of any kind of potential hope for an end to this, uh, you see a lot of kind of articles and, and news around it. And, and they were kind of positioning it a bit like superworms are are essentially going to digest plastic. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> like... <laughs> uh, no, no, that's not what, what really is happening. And uh, I'm, I'm with, with you on this one. I also see a lot of news that are hyped 
a little mm -hmm. bit too much. Um, and this is really dangerous because plastic pollution is a really complex problem. And there will never be just one solution that saves it all. We have to come up with a system of solutions. We have to understand the whole complex value chain and interact in every point in order to fix it. So that's the first point. And then about the worms. So we also started with worms. We, we read a paper about plastic eating wax worms and we're starting experiments with the, with the wax worms. But the thing is, the worm itself cannot be used on, a, on an industrial scale. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense, not, in, not efficiency wise and obviously not for any any animal right, rights. So what you do is you try to understand why these worms, so for example, the wax worm or the meal worm or the super worm are able to eat plastics and what enzymes uh, are produced in their bodies in order that they can do this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's pretty amazing that, that an, a natural animal can somehow process it. Like, just because they can eat it, it probably doesn't mean they kind of want to eat it necessarily, I would guess. It's like if they're in a push or they can kind of eat their way through it. Like, how did this, do you know the origins of how this was discovered? Um, yeah, so one, like there are several stories around this because there are several worms doing this for different kind of plastics. But one or the first paper, paper that I read about this was from 2017 from an Italian researcher called Federica Bertocchini. Mm -hmm. And she was um, or she is a, a hobby beekeeper. And she just, um, I don't know the exact story, but it was something like she she took a, a honeycomb back home and she wrapped it into a plastic bag and it was attacked by this wax worms. And then the wax worms actually started to eat the plastic bag. And this is how she started uh, looking into it because she's a, a biologist. And then she started working on this. And she's actually even on it until now, too. Wow. So waxworms, yeah. basically, in, in nature, they would find a beehive. They'd break down the wax that holds the honey inside and and, uh, and then exactly. eat that really nice, high-energy food source. Uh, I guess wax is kind of a bit plasticky in a way, isn't it? It's a natural polymer, exactly. And uh, actually, it's a big problem for beekeepers because they are invading the honeycombs and destroying everything there. Yeah. But um, on the other hand, it's fascinating how they can break this bonds of the, of the natural polymer. So this is why scientists thought that this might be the cause of them also being able to breaking um, synthetic uh, polymer bonds. Interesting. And yeah, the, the funny thing about nature is that nature is always adopting, right? Uh, adopting and uh, mm -hmm. evolving. Yeah. So due to the fact that we have been polluting the environment for such a long time, there are, I think, right now over 300 microorganisms that can degrade plastics just wow. because they develop this capacity. So, for example, um, one of the first microorganisms that were discovered was a bacteria called uh, Idionella sakaiensis, and it was found on a Japanese PT uh, landfill. And okay. obviously it just um, ad like uh, learned how to, to use this material because it was living there. Mm -hmm. So that is what, what fascinates me so much about biology and especially microbiology, how little creatures can adopt and just find strategies for surviving in the most unreal conditions. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you only have to watch the nature documentaries to see that even in the most extreme places on Earth, there seems to be life. Um, and, yeah. and, and as you say, it's always evolving. I think the, the challenge 
challenge, I guess, is that evolution is used to millennia to evolve, and and we're evolving, uh, of course, too, and we have evolved. Um, but it's like we're kind of outpacing with our consumption habits, um, I guess, the, as the speed that nature can evolve to kind of process things. And also, yeah. you know, part of me thinks actually nature shouldn't have to process like foreign objects. And if we had a bit more of an attitude, which was one of stewardship of the world that we're we're kind of participants in, then, you know, it would probably be better for, for us all because, um, yeah, it's... It, it's a huge problem and but you you're taking on this this problem and i'm kind of interested how you got to here and in terms of you read this um this paper or or, or this this uh, article about the the wax worm in 2017 can you tell everyone a bit about what your background is and um you know kind of how you grew up you know, why why you took on industrial design as an area of interest and then what kind of firmed your mind around tackling this particular challenge? So as we already teased in the beginning, I, I'm from Italy. I'm from the from the German-speaking part of Italy, so known as South Tyrol. Growing up in the Dolomites, so in the, one of the most beautiful areas probably in the world, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I grew up in a really, really small uh, mountain village and I was always super close to nature. I grew up with a lot of animals. Uh, we have a little farm. I am passionate about mountains and everything that is outside. So it was always one of my like core topics. So after I finished high school, I, I wasn't sure what I want to do with my life, as many people. <laughs> and then I read about this studies that is called industrial design. And in the description of the, of the study, yeah, of this, of this course, it said uh, it's, a, it's focusing on problem solving. So this uh, impressed me immediately. I was like, this, um, I want to be a problem solver. This sounds good. When I read this, I, 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 thought, I thought this would be the perfect um, fit for me because I almost wanted to do something creative but technical. And this is like the perfect combination of, of these two worlds. So I started studying industrial design first in Venice. And then I worked for, uh, for some time as an industrial designer. Uh, but then in the actual job, I don't felt like I was solving any problems. I felt like I was making products for rich people to sell more stuff. And that that made me feel really bad about myself because I wanted to do this. I wanted to do something that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So I decided to go back to university and I uh, did my master's studies at the Technical University of Munich. And right in the first semester, they were asking us to do a speculative design project about the world's biggest problems. So I was like, yes, finally <laughs> going back to the problem solving. And uh, speculative design is, is a discipline in design where you look at technologies that don't exist yet, but you try to think them through. Like you try to imagine how these technologies that are not available yet could look like once they are available, right? So. I was doing uh, this project about plastic pollution and I was reading, this was the first time I was reading this this paper about uh, the plastic eating worms and I just got hooked. <laughs> so I was, I just fell in love with the, with the topic and I thought like, oh, somebody really has to try to, to make this happen for real. 
I so that kind of the... clicked, right? So speculative yeah. design being like a project where you're, you're essentially imagining uh, what the future holds in a way, not trying to design with the tools and things you have now. And then this kind of landed on your lap in some way and it just kind of resonated, I guess. Yeah. So the power of, of speculative design is that you make it look real already. Mm-hmm. And this emphasizes your wish to make something happen. So there, you can also make it the other way around. For example, Black Mirror, a ser- series that probably a lot of people know, does, does it the other way around. They project technologies in the future and show a really negative version of the um, use of that technology or the potential use to scare people. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, Term- Terminator was a, was a good example of that, I think. And uh, Elon Musk is doing yeah. a good job to uh, remind us. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So basically, everything that is science fiction is is also kind of speculative design. But you can do it uh, in, a, in a way to make people dream and wish about something positive in the future too so that's how the whole thing started and then i dragged it along um through my whole studies i did several courses where i brought the topic up again and then i was um right in front of my master thesis and i i was thinking like how can i how can i sell an industrial design chair that i want to do experiments with worms (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah somehow i i made it happen uh and in the meantime i already had access to uh to a lab where this was like a novel thing at the at the university where you could do a course and then you could work there even though you wouldn't have the the right like the natural science background yeah and during my master thesis uh, the experiments again turned out to be super interesting i had some some uh, weight loss in the plastics and i saw that the silk of the worms was changing and that there was definitely something happening so i couldn't let go after and um after my studies, I I was unsure if I should continue with this or I should get a proper job. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I had a really good offering on the table. Uh, but then I won a prize with the with the project, which gave me a little bit of money. And then I thought, like, okay, now now you just have to do it. <laughs> that was the universe telling you. Uh, yeah. carry on, stay the course and exactly. um, fall, falling you into a false sense of security like it was going to yeah. be easy when in fact you know, building any company is super hard building probably a biotech in a emerging or kind of bleeding edge almost um, area it, 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 I can't imagine how tough that must be but what a brilliant kind of opportunity i guess because yeah it's interesting if you look at some you know the geniuses like einstein they're able to kind of bridge fields and 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 apply thinking in different ways and so it's it's encouraging that technical university labs can be opened up to people with imaginations that aren't kind of put into a box around oh well you have to be a biochemist to even kind of get make it into the room but you must have i guess a uh, pretty technical team around you now. So, so how did you have you spun the company off from the from the university? How does it work? Did you set it up inside the university? And and how did you make those first mm. hires? And and who were who who was kind of the first hires for you in terms of like who are the team that that are working on this problem and what kind of skills do you need? So the company is not an incorporated fully spinned off company yet. Uh, this has several bureaucratic and also um, financial reasons because yeah. we are still using university infrastructure. Uh, okay. We are financed through a state grant. So 
yeah, it's a bit uh, tricky in Germany to to get the grants. So you you're not allowed to be incorporated for most of the grants. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why I have always to say we're still not fully spin spinned off. Yep. But uh, the way it worked is that <laughs> that I just ask around if somebody knows a biologist. I had like um, little posters uh, hanging up in the in the in the lab where I was doing my my little experiments, and then I just um, so there were like evening events from the university where you could um, pitch your idea and and look for co-founders. And one of my co-founders, I just found him like that. And the other one just um, heard about us by word of mouth. And then um, then she also heard about us while she was doing her sword fighting course. <laughs> Because wow. she was sword sword fighting against our our lab, um, the sort of head of the lab where we were working at, and he was telling her about it. Uh, is that um, like so, uh, fencing? Uh, is it the, the? No, it's uh, so, so she's into um, middle actual age, sword fighting. Sword middle, fighting. Oh, of course, it, of course. Yeah, was... of course she is right, <laughs> and <laughs> and she has a real real heavy metal sword. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's sounding eclectic, definitely, and it's sounding a fun place to be. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping she doesn't bring her hobbies to work. <laughs> no, but sometimes we we threat people that are not nice to us that she that she will bring it. <laughs> she, she's your leverage. Yeah. She's your she's your fixer. Sorry, just to finish finish mm. that story. Um, um, so basically, yeah, I, I, the only criteria for me was: Are you a biologist, and can you can you count till ten, and and that's it. So, uh, but I was super lucky, so I just bumped into the right people, and uh, we teamed up, and then we did um, it alone for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, and then we discovered: Oh, uh, we need a chair to support us, otherwise we cannot write any applications for grants. And then we were just um, walking around and asking random professors to to be our mentor and of mm-hmm. course most of them said no <laughs> yeah terrified and yeah and then uh, one of them said if you if you managed to deliver something real so if you managed to isolate a bacteria from this worm yeah then we can talk again Okay. And then we we went back to the lab. We went back to work. We um, extracted the gut gut of this worms and put it into a media where plastic was the only carbon source. And we did our homework. And then after I think a few weeks, we had we had something. And we just got back to his office with our bacteria and said, like, here's the bacteria. Now you have to let us in. <laughs> <laughs> So you actually saw results from adding the enzymes or the bacteria that was inside the worm's gut into some kind of media that that had plastic um, molecules in as well. And you could see there was changes happening. Exactly. So this is how how we found our bacteria. So first we put the worms on the plastic diet for a really long time. Okay. So their their gut system would adapt to mm-hmm. the situation. And then we put out the guts and put the gut bacteria in the same situation. So we we put them like in a in a habitat where they there was no other food than plastics. Okay. And uh, this caused that, or this led to the fact that only those who could really eat 
this plastic or attack this plastic could grow. Okay. And we did this several times. And with this system, we picked over 40 strains and we even found a novel bacteria. And, oh, nice. and now we're uh, looking at this bacteria to find out which enzymes they're producing. Because the enzyme is not a, a living organism. The enzyme is just the mechanism of their degradation, right? Yeah, so, what, so let's quick primer on enzymes. Enzymes, normally they're, they're kind of, well, they're chemical and they, um, and they speed things up, don't they? Like catalysts, they like yeah, convert, exactly. convert things. So, yeah. I mean, we have, we have enzymes. I guess every creature has enzymes in their guts and stuff. Yeah it's the same so if you for example if you think about um people that are uh lactose intolerant intolerant yeah this means that in their bodies or in their digestion system they're missing an enzyme called lactase right and this enzyme is produced by gut bacteria usually okay you're studying the worms but you're actually studying you're trying to study the bacteria inside the guts of the worm and yeah. it, it it varies from worm to worm. Oh, well, specifically in worms that you have been obviously providing a only plastic diet to some time for, so that the the you know as you say you know things are changing or things are happening. But like, is this yeah, like was... trying to find one in a million worms or that <laughs> that has a good enzyme, or is it kind of similar from worm to worm? So there are different approaches. We're also looking at the whole worm because, for example, this um, this original researcher she found out that also in the worms. Uh, salvia there was enzymes that could uh, could attack polyethylene mm-hmm. so we're still looking at the whole worm but we are more focused on on the gut bacteria and we have to say that this is our gut bacteria because our worm was on a plastic diet for a really really long time and obviously that changes your your digestion or and your guts um how you say like the, the way the gut is is composed changes a lot when you eat something for a really long time it's right. also in humans it's the same thing if you would eat i don't know bananas for a year Mm-hmm. You would, you would probably die. But let, let's say if you if you would eat one one single thing for a really long time, mm-hmm. then it changes the whole your whole system, right? Your whole gut bacteria, um, who is present, who is less present, yeah. and so on. So you can influence that a lot and push it into a certain direction. So it's it's forced evolution basically. Breeding is the same thing, right? If you if you wanna if you see, for example, that a specific um, feature in in the worm would be really attractive. Let's say you want you want worms that have a long tail. Let's say mm-hmm. then you pick the ones with the long ta- tail and you try to get as far as possible with them, right? right? So they develop long uh, even even longer tails and so on and this is the same logic you you go on with the worms that can survive on a plastic diet as long as possible mm-hmm. then you take the gut bacteria and do the same thing with the gut bacteria and then at the end of the day you have the the best performers and and so you've been doing this process now for some time and you're you're starting to see encouraging results yeah what we see is so the tricky thing in this whole research field is that there is no standards analysis method. So usually in, in research, um, there is um, essays that everybody knows about that are 
common and that everybody agrees about. And if you have these methods, um, it's super easy to detect what's happening. But for plastic degradation, there is no standard assay. So what we had to do in order to detect whether something is happening or not, um, to do like a bunch of different analysis. So we did Raman spectroscopy, we did G uh, GCMS, um, different kind of chemical analysis. Mm -hmm. Of course, we also looked at the weight of the plastic and the weight of the bacteria and how that changed. And with all these methods combined, and for example, also the oxi oxidation that we saw on the surface, it's pretty, pretty um, not clear, but it's, it's pretty, um, yeah, it's leading us into the direction that there is really something happening there. And this combined with all the results from other researchers, we can say almost for sure that uh, plastic degradation is, is happening with these microorganisms and we just need to speed it up. Okay. But there is still a lot of question marks in this whole research field, because as I said, like this is quite a novel research field. It's maybe been 20 years, which sounds a lot, but it's not a lot in research. Mm -hmm. And especially in, in polyethylene degradation, it's us and a bunch of other teams in the world and that's it. And we also interact with each other because we want to like push each other because it's so difficult. It's such a difficult research topic. So we we have to, the more we can interact with others, the, the better it is actually, because then we can be quicker. Yeah. And so you're, this community, obviously you're com joining forces in some respects and, and um, kind of sharing information and trying to accelerate this. What's the vision? Of, of well for you and for the community around how this actually works like in terms of what's the big payback if you can replicate this enzyme and produce this enzyme at scale how, how will it fit in the whole um, universe of like plastic um, circularity I mean should I call it that I mean because yeah. the problem with plastic is it's not circular and the, and and I've seen and we've chatted even on this show to you know interesting founders who, who are taking different approaches and and you know some people just talk about recycling recycling is, is the way forward others talk about you know bioplastics or uh, ways of you know um, getting rid of it or or whatever so how do you see it how do you see this playing out because we have a massive problem can really the gut of a worm play a meaningful um a role in in fixing this moving forward yes it can <laughs> because um in order to reach circularity what we need to do is to get to the point where we get valuable raw material out of plastics what is happening right now is that a part of the plastics unfortunately a really small part is mechanically recycled and this almost always leads to downcycling because you're just doing a physical process where you shred the plastic up, you melt it again, and you you redo it, right? So um, down downcycling is basically you you end up with worse and worse material or, or less and less. Um, yeah, every cycle. Material. Yeah, every cycle the quality gets worse. I have to say that for some materials, mechanical recycling is the best solution right now. Mm -hmm. For example, for clear PET bottles, yeah, um, it is the best thing that we have right now and we should definitely keep going. But for other things, for example, for mixed plastic, color plastic, contaminated plastic, 
it doesn't work at all. It either doesn't work at all or it leads to like downcycling. So you can maybe do one cycle, max two, and then it's done and then you have to burn it anyways. Yeah, and countries are basically disposing of it by passing the problem on to poorer countries and uh, exactly. with, with less regulation and doing yeah. pretty nefarious and, and not very nice things. And it, it usually ends up either incinerated or, or in the environment in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that we use the same tactics for plastics that we did when we were teenagers and we were supposed to clean our room. We just, <laughs> we just hide it away and hope that uh, mom's not discovering it, kind yeah. of. <laughs> that's, I feel like that's, that's what the whole world is doing there. Let's just hide it and pretend it's not there. Uh, anyway, so um, what's biocatalytic and also other methods of raw material recycling are doing though, is that they're breaking down the molecule. So you're going back to the beginning, basically. You're you're generating new virgin-like raw materials out of a used material. It's like you would have a, a table and you would turn it back into a tree. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do everything with with virgin-like raw material, and that's the that's kind of the holy grail in in plastic recycling. Because once we understand how to do that, then we can make plastics really circular. Of course, we have to do a bunch of other things mm-hmm. like design for recycling, uh, using less materials, uh, making things less uh, complicated and so on. But still, this is a crucial piece in this whole puzzle uh, that would change things a lot. And this is the first step. And the second step is once you really understand this natural degradation mechanisms and you have enzymes that you can maybe also use in natural habitats, you can start cleaning up polluted environments. Uh, but the first step and the, the most important step is to understand how the degradation works and then make it more efficient. And the way it will work is in, in a bioreactor. So you just have to imagine a big bioreactor where the enzymes are inside mm-hmm. and you throw in the plastics. And the interesting thing about enzymes is that they are substrate specific, which means that they only attack the material that they're supposed to attack. So if you have mixed materials, for example, which is one of the main problems, the, the enzyme will attack only the one material that you want to be decomp- that is decomposed. So that's that's one really interesting approach about plastic recycling, um, periodic recycling. And then the other thing is that it is really energy efficient or it's... Thought to be energy efficient because enzymes are, as you said before, natural um, catalysts, and they don't they don't need uh, a lot of external energy or anything. They just need a certain a certain uh, media and, yep. and a certain temperature that is yep. stable. But usually, it's not like 500 degrees, but yep. maybe 30 degrees or 40 degrees. Yeah, and then they work. Uh, while the other method of raw material recycling is chemical recycling. Mm-hmm. So it's the same concept, but with, with chemical reactions. And usually that requires a lot of uh, temperature, high temperature and high pressure. Right. And of course, where you have that, you need a lot of energy. And yeah. en- energy at the moment is mostly still from fossil fuels. So it's kind of like yeah. burning fossil fuels to try and recycle fossil fuels. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. So to to sum up the the, the benefits of, of biotic recycling is you you avoid the use of fossil fuels because you're mm-hmm. going back to the raw material. You mm-hmm. save a lot of energy. You do a natural process. You can address plastics that are currently not being addressed because they don't fit in the current system. And in the future, you might also be able to use it to clean up the environment. So 
it's pretty attractive technology. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why it sucked you in to this, you know, opportunity when when you had a sort of personal quest to kind of find a really meaningful opportunity to sink your yeah. teeth into. And boy, I mean, this is a really exciting and interesting space. I think, what are you kind of looking for right now? Like, do you think you, it's an aha moment or is it kind of evolutionary kind of thing where you just have to keep doing more and more of what you're doing and, exp- uh, and basically increasing your I guess resources and and your collaboration with others in terms of trying to produce this enzyme like a an enzyme I guess that you can commercialize or that you can in some way uh replicate at scale I guess is needed is that is that what you're working on yeah so we're looking at both we're looking at either the the enzymatic scale up or fermentation Mm -hmm. so keeping it in the bacteria might also be an option because for example if you if the degradation process turns out to be a combination of enzymes which is uh, quite probable, yeah. then it might be easier to, to keep it in the bacteria because then you have your, your little factory there already. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, yeah, but that's all questions that we, we have to clarify along the way. Mm-hmm. The, the enzymatic approach is the more, like, it's the more known one in a, in a scalable, um, going through a scale up. Yep. So it might do a combination. We will, we'll see. What we, are, we really need to do right now is to speed up our game. So we need more people in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why we're also uh, looking into uh, a pre-seed funding round now because we need to have as many samples as possible working at the same time. We are already doing a lot of uh, things in parallel, so we are combining our bacteria to find the best mix. We are looking into the, to the enzymes a bit more. We are um, working on this degradation um, standard assay to have it to have the the, question, the testing going quicker. There's still a lot of work to do, and I feel like now it's the, the dynamics in these fields are changing. So now the, the first competitors are pe- popping up, and mm-hmm. it's time to to speed up. Let's say. <laughs> okay, there's other worms on the block, and uh, you need to uh, to move faster. So okay, so yeah. you're you're basically. But it's lo- good. Like yeah, I'm happy about that because uh, like of course I'm a bit, little bit afraid that somebody will be quicker. But on the other hand, for me, it's about solving the problem in the first place. And there is so much plastics out there. I think there's enough space for like ten um, PE degrading companies. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I don't think the the uh, size of the pie is the problem, if you know what I mean, like the terms of the size yeah. of the problem, the size of the, the market to go after. The question is really around how you make solutions that fit um, into our existing systems and which markets you choose and which approaches. There must be just a thousand different decisions on this. But I only have a couple more questions for you. I want to know who is Super Steve? And because <laughs> I've seen him mentioned, because you you have a you have a podcast as well, right? You have a plastic uh, yeah. podcast. So what's yeah. that? Tell us about that. Um, so our podcast is called the Plastics Pop Up Podcast. You can you can watch it on YouTube or just uh, on the regular podcast platforms. Uh, so this podcast is we. One of our goals is also to educate people about plastic pollution and everything that has to do with it. So we have this really short 10 minutes uh, thing that you can just watch in your coffee break where we explain a few common myths about plastics or about the recycling industry. And it's just like an easygoing, quick thing that people can watch. And um, Super Steve is is our bacteria that we discovered. So the the story is that Verena, my co-founder, she 
she's a, a microbiologist yeah. and uh, she had all our like strains in the lab and and as i said we we like to to interact with other researchers but we also don't want to give away our secrets right yeah so we were like yeah how, what is our strategy if people ask us for for the strain names and verena was just like saying i, I just call all my bacteria steve so nobody will <laughs> will know <laughs> and then and then she found this one bacteria that had, didn't had any match in a, in a data bank so that we basically discovered. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, he's the best of all Steve. So this is Super Steve. <laughs> so Super Steve is your kind of uh, your own internal IP like name yeah. of, of your bacteria. And Valena is actually, is she chief bacteria officer? Is that correct? Or is that yeah. Just a bit of yeah. I've never actually yeah, met a correct. chief bacteria officer before. Um, yeah. But, but I hope to one day. Okay, so Super Steve was part of, uh, I guess, a break. It was a major breakthrough then, or a, a special moment. Yeah, it, it was a special moment, and um, he's also going to be part of our first patent. So, so yeah, we're we, we're happy to have him. Currently, he's he's hanging out in the lab uh, with his friends because we <laughs> as also found out. Do. Yeah, as bacteria do. We also found out that he's happier when he has a, a certain friend around. But yeah, I, I cannot specify more on that because then it's going to get too much into the IP but as you as you can see we're we're having fun with bacteria <laughs> yeah you are you're having fun with bacteria and fun with worms I had a quick look on your website before I uh, you know started this call you can adopt a worm for Christmas <laughs> on your yeah. on your website so <laughs> tell us about that yeah I mean so as you as you might have uh, guest, our our research is super capital intense. Uh, it's uh, we need a lot of money, and it's hard to get a lot of money. And people asked us, oh, how can I support? And then we came up with this idea that they can just adopt one of our worms and um, give it give it a name. Uh, get a certificate and get featured on our worm wall of fame for the sake of science and yeah so if you if you don't know what to what to give for for christmas to your loved ones uh, i think uh, having a worm is, is really special <laughs> i think i'm gonna i'm definitely gonna do it um and i, I i'm gonna video the reaction of of uh, of my wife as I, if I as i give her an adopted worm for christmas um <laughs> you don't actually get the worm just to be clear right it's, it's a bit like when you adopt an orangutan you're kind of basically paying towards the the upkeep of that that yeah. animal rather than taking it away with you so but you get to name it uh and uh you're you could be and you get a certificate you get a certificate <laughs> certificates are very yeah. important extremely yeah. important and uh, so that can go up on the wall um it's actually it's a nice thing to have in the backdrop when you're on a uh, on a zoom call and could be helping contribute to fixing one of the biggest problems we've got in the world should bee worm basically come forward and find this these fantastic bacteria and enzymes that can really play a significant role in helping making plastics more circular which i think would definitely be a good outcome so look we need worms as much as we need tigers and, and giraffes and all the other animals so so why, <laughs> why not adopt a worm I, I i love it and i love the creativity it reminds me a bit of <laughs> airbnb when they were getting going they were kind of um uh they ended up doing obama o's like this cereal but and i can't remember what was it captain mccain or kind of cereal as well when there was the the um the the race between obama and mccain uh, for uh, for for uh, president and i think they made a load of money with that and that's one of the reasons the vcs invested in because they could 
could see they could hustle. So I think it bodes very well uh, for you, Ellie, and and and, um, and thanks a lot for for sharing more. How should people get in contact with you? Obviously, we'll put details in the show notes to your LinkedIn and stuff like that. Is that the best way? Yeah, that's the best way. And you can always just um, write me an email to. Uh, Eleonore at beworm.org or uh, visit our website write me on LinkedIn uh, yeah whatever you whatever you wish to do and yeah I, I just want to add to what you just said is that you should never underestimate the power of creativity and I think this is this is our secret secret superpower we might uh, not be the typical science team but we we have creativity on our side <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, and and never underestimate the power of nature either, because the answers are right there in front of us. So, That's um, right. thank you so much for joining and for taking us through this crazy bacterial bioengineering world. Um, and I really want to keep in touch and and um, be one of the first to hear when when you know this starts becoming commercialized. So, thank you, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, and good luck to the whole Bee Worm team. Thank you, and thanks for having me. 